And I'm really excited about our guest uh, for this remainder of the of the program. It's Dr. Paul Carson, who is a specialist in infectious diseases uh, uh, with uh, Sanford uh, in Fargo, as well as uh, teaching in the uh, Department of Public Health at NDSU. And he's got many other credentials, but we don't really have the time because he's got an important topic to talk about, a very interesting topic, and we really want to kind of just jump right into it. So, Dr. Carson, welcome. Good morning, Jack and Doreen. Pleasure to be with you. Well, Thank you for being on. Yeah, thanks for being on. I'm, re- I'm really excited about this. You know, uh, I've heard you a number of times before, and, uh, you know, talking about this strong connection between spirituality and health and I guess the first question to just kind of kick things off is, uh, uh, you know, you're a specialist in d- infectious diseases. How did, uh, what prompted your interest in uh, this topic of spirituality and health? Yeah, well, it's uh, really kind of increased a lot for me in the last few years. But I, I really um, first started getting interested in, in this early in my career as a physician where I just personally was struggling with trying to figure out how to integrate my own faith into my practice, Uh, kind of questions about if and how and when to engage in spiritual matters for my patients who were really seeing me primarily for physical problems, in fact, primarily for serious infectious diseases. And, you know, I was kind of questioning what, if anything, um, was the nature of how I might be looking at spiritual matters, uh, which were important to me personally, but uh, should they pertain to my practice? And I was, uh, you know, working through things like how to open that conversation up in the first place, and when and how and where I would consider ever praying, you know, for or a little more scary with patients. And it was through a very powerful encounter very early in my practice. Uh, where I witnessed how strong a resource both prayer and spiritual engagement could be for uh, one of my patients. I was um, in a practice with other infectious disease specialists and was cross-covering one of my partners who also liked to maintain a general medical practice. And when we had to cross-cover him, it was a little bit uncomfortable for us specialists having to go back to kind of more general medicine. Um, but we, we did that uh, since uh, we needed to cover his uh, patients when he'd go on vacation. And I remember very um, clearly one patient, uh, again, in my first year of practice, who I was seeing for him, and she was a woman who was just coming in for a regular uh, medical checkup. And I had a 15-minute visit scheduled with her for, just to kind of review her blood pressure and borderline diabetes care. And I got in the room, and she looked very uh, down and very flat and proceeded to tell me that she was uh, struggling with very major depression, um, that her mother had committed suicide in the past, her sister had committed suicide in the past. She had attempted suicide in the past and was very intent on wanting to commit suicide now. And so I, you know, took a deep breath and looked at my watch and said, okay, I've got about... uh, um, 12 minutes left in the visit here scheduled, and this is, you know, a very uh, challenging problem that wasn't something I was used to dealing with anymore in my infectious disease practice. And so, you know, I reviewed a little bit of her depression history, and I reviewed, um, uh, you know, kind of what was going on there, and she was very insistent on, on not going to see the psychiatrist, who her psychiatrist was out of town, so she would have had to see uh, somebody else covering uh, him, and uh, was uh, quite unwilling to consider being put in the hospital for this 
bout of depression. And so I was really at my wit's end as to what to do and was trying to remember kind of things like how you involuntarily commit someone for depression when they're, they're potentially uh, life is at risk. So I, I just started praying to myself. I just started asking for God's help as to what to do uh, with this patient. I, I had very minimal time to try and contend with a pretty serious problem. And I, I had a very insistent uh, um, thought that I should pray with her, ask her to pray with her. Well, I had never done that with patients before. I was not comfortable with that idea of doing that, but this was um, something that I really felt quite pressing on me in my throwing up uh, you know, prayer to God to help. And um, even though I quickly was bargaining in my mind how to get <laughs> out of that because I was not comfortable with that idea, I, I just put out to her, you know, asking her the question if she had any faith background. And she told me she was Catholic, but had not been practicing for a long time and had been really kind of away from God. And I asked her if I could, if it would be okay if I prayed with her. And she looked a bit surprised, but agreed, and I sort of fumbled through some, I'm sure, very non-eloquent prayer uh, with her. And she started crying and um, and became very emotional and, you know, came out of that prayer thanking me profusely because she said she'd really been away from God for a long time and and at that moment felt very convicted to try and get back into the church and get back uh, into a relationship with God. And um, as we talked a bit more, she said she was not wanting to end her life, not wanting to commit suicide. And um, I was still very, very concerned about letting her out of the office without any further management, and I asked her if she would be willing to see my pastor, and, and she did um, that next day. And I saw her a few days later, and she was in a much better place, and, and she called me several times over the course of that year thanking me for that prayer and for kind of connecting her back with her faith. So I saw in this one example a, a, a very striking uh, uh you know, episode of one, the power of prayer that I had not been in the habit of doing in my own practice, and two, how her engagement in, in reconnecting with her spiritual life became a tremendous resource for her to contend with her very serious problem of depression. Now, fast forward to just a couple of years ago, I, I moved most of my work here at North Dakota State University where I teach and do research in the School of Public Health. And I, I frequently attend a seminar on campus that uh, focuses on matters pertaining to kind of the intersection of religion and science. And this uh, monthly seminar during the school year uh, was begun and kind of hosted by a couple of people who were very active in the Red River Freethinker Society here in Fargo, which is an atheist organization in town. And they, they wanted to host... Uh, a sort of um, collegial discussion about matters of uh, religion and science and where there's controversy or not from all sides. And I, I remember attending one of those seminars, and I don't even remember what the talk was about, but I remember one of, the, one of my colleague college professors got up after this talk and made a statement um, that they thought children raised in a religious home were, in their opinion, were likely to have a distinct disadvantage for their mental health and well-being since they were likely taught to, you know, perseverate about such things as sin and divine punishment and eternal damnation, etc. And I remember thinking that, boy, this colleague's experience of religious people sure didn't seem to jive with my experience of religious people and, and who, I, you know, 
for the most part, uh, my friends in my faith community, uh, I thought, flourished a lot better than most other people. But it made me wonder if there was any actual research out there that suggested religious people tend to do any better or worse compared to non-religious people. And so I ended up diving into that medical literature and uh, and I found what I found there really kind of astounded me. So that's a long-winded answer to how I got interested in this. Well, yes, very interesting. I I I like your 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 mention of the you know your your introduction uh, probably could have fit well with our having Deacon Jim Hunt here uh, talking about the the value of pastoral care in in our nursing homes. Yeah. Well, well. You know, I would imagine, though, when uh, you started diving into the literature, uh, you needed to have some data that you could bring to your colleagues in order to uh, show, demonstrate to them that there, there's actually some science behind this. Right, right. So first I wanted to just kind of learn about this more for myself. And then, uh, you know, I'm always sort of in teacher mode. I've been, you know, a teacher uh, my entire career for medical students and residents and now formally at North Dakota State University. So I, I started looking into this and what I found was really, especially over the last two decades, I would say, there's been an explosion of interest in research around the effects of uh, spirituality or religiosity and we can get into how you define that, but um, uh, but the effects of that on both physical and mental health. And what I found uh, is that the overwhelming consensus of the research is that people who have um, either what we call intrinsic religio religiosity, meaning they've really adopted this as part of their identity and engage in it in a meaningful way, or even more so, people who um, actively practice in some faith community, um, that, that's usually... Uh, how religiosity is defined, that they, they have some outward manifestation, that they are engaged in the practice of their faith. And that's typically measured by something like at least weekly church attendance. That when you look at those couple of measures of intrinsic religiosity or regular practice in a faith community, um, those people are pretty much substantially better off in almost every measure you look at. Um, you can look at uh, a plethora of health outcomes, anxiety, depression, ability to cope with uh, major trauma or stress, self-esteem, hope, overall happiness, marital stability, delinquency and crime, overcoming substance abuse, lowered suicide risk, and then even moving into like physical health, like control of high blood pressure, control of diabetes, prevention of cardiovascular disease, even how well someone with Alzheimer's disease functions cognitively, um, all of those are substantially better in almost uh, the vast majority of studies that look at this if you are religiously engaged compared to people that are not. And then the sort of big, uh, you know, kind of kahuna that we look at in public health is, is mortality. And what you find is that, um, uh, there, that in most of the really well-designed studies, um, something that we call prospective cohort studies. These are the best, highest quality research studies that can be done in this kind of area. The average mortality reduction um, in, in people who are religiously engaged or active is about 37% compared to those that uh, do not. Now, that's a huge benefit. I mean, there are, we don't come close to that kind of mortality benefit with 
common things that we do, like trying to control your cholesterol or control your blood pressure or good control of your diabetes, you know, that's a tremendous uh, effect size. Um, yet, you know, who, uh, whoever is asked about their religious engagement when they go to the doctor? And, in fact, this mortality benefit, uh, when you translate that out, um, adds, on average, about seven years greater lifespan um, in those who are more religiously engaged than those who are not. So, again, in public health terms, that's an enormous gain. Um, I will have to say, uh, in sort of full disclosure of the science, uh, there is one area of health where religious people tend to be a bit worse off than their non-religious counterparts, and that is, uh, unfortunately, with obesity. Uh, religious people tend to be a bit more obese than their non-religious counterparts in several studies, and maybe that's a few too many donuts after mass in the social. <laughs> Should switch to eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you probably heard that we uh, were giving a dozen donuts to a priest in South Dakota <laughs> earlier today. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to just interrupt for just a second. I want to remind our listeners the, that uh, they're tuned in to Real Presence Live and uh, your hosts, uh, Jack and Doreen Canelli, and uh, our guest is Dr. Paul Carson, and he's talking about the effects of uh, how spirituality can affect uh, uh, medical outcomes. And so w with that, uh, Dr. Carson, I'll bring it back to you. Right. So I think, you know, one of the next questions uh, that frequently comes up, certainly in if, if you're talking to a medical audience or a research or academic audience is, well, why is this? Why does it look like people who are more engaged in a spiritual life or uh, uh, religious practice uh, tend to be healthier? And um, there's a number of different ideas, you know, short of a supernatural explanation, there are a number of other um, uh, things that are looked at to try and help explain this. And so we, we know that often in the religiously active person, um, they tend to often have healthier habits, except for maybe with, with the eating that we talked about, but less smoking, less alcohol and substance use, less promiscuous sex. Uh, so healthier habits certainly can confer benefit. Social connectedness, um, we know from other studies that people who have richer social connections in family and friends and, and people involved in their life tend to do better. Um, we also know that people who have greater meaning and purpose in their life, and there are actually validated measures of this um, that look at you know how much meaning and purpose do you have in your life tends to confer significant health benefits. Capacity for forgiveness, um, uh, People who are more forgiving tend to be healthier. People who can make sense out of suffering tend to do better. And even um, things like virtues, um, like gratitude and humility, also other attributes like hopefulness, all of these have been shown to confer health benefits. And it's probably not a big jump or probably not very hard to see that there are maybe not very many things that come close to packaging all of those kind of attributes together like the religious life. Um, but that said, uh, there are a few studies that have tried to tease apart which of these attributes is most predictive of health. And interestingly, it's actually religious practice. Um, the, the sort of one that stands out the strongest is um, if people are regularly practicing in some kind of faith community. So, you know, it's one thing to say I'm a spiritual person, um, and, you know, I have these sort of uh, attributes or whatever, it's quite another to have your faith be such a part of your life that you 
on a Sunday morning, forego sleeping in or watching sports or whatever else you might feel like doing, and you go to a communal house of worship. And that probably is evidence that you have at least some substantial, measurable commitment to your spiritual life. Um, and so it, it's not really clear why that uh, confers these benefits, but I think, you know, for those of us who think about this maybe philosophically, if we, if we really believe that we are um, a mind, you know, we, we have a mind, spirit, and body uh, together, that if you are sort of taking care of all three of those things, you're much more likely to flourish and do well than if you're only kind of hitting on one or two of those. Um, so, uh, um, I, you know, I do think it, it, the, these attributes, you know, can be seen in people who aren't necessarily religious, but to have that whole package, there are very few things that sort of put that all together and, you know, ask of us to be forgiving, ask of us to uh, try and practice humility, ask of us to be grateful, um, gives us a definite meaning and purpose in life, um, and then often confers those benefits of social connectedness. I mean, there's very few things that are going to come close to the religious life um, than, than um, uh, other areas. I guess it shows how... Uh complex we are and how fully integrated we are in all aspects of ourselves of our persons and how god knows how he created us yeah. and that when we respond to the way in which we've been created exactly it benefits yeah. us well so what does this mean to you as a physician when it comes to patient encounters or just to people who are engaged in the in the healthcare system right uh you know i this is a question i've been asking myself a lot lately and and i've I'm a, I'm a frequent invited speaker to medical conferences on various topics of infectious diseases, but recently I've told them, you know, I want to talk to you about this. And uh, so I, I've got an upcoming talk with the North Dakota Academy of Family Physicians on this topic, and we'll kind of see how interested my physician colleagues are. But uh, when you look at most of our patients uh, in, in uh, big surveys like the Gallup survey in, in the United States, most of our patients and most of the population has some belief in God. And then when you ask further, um, many say that they really would like their physicians to address this aspect of their lives, um, especially when they're in a health crisis. And in fact, a substantial minority of patients in surveys said that they would really like it if their physician would pray with them, especially if they're in near-death scenarios. Yet if you survey physicians, um, they will typically say that they intellectually agree with the idea that they should address their patients' spiritual concerns. Most will say, yeah, that's a good idea and that's important, but as a matter of practice, it's almost never done. Very, very few do this. Uh, in fact, I will tell you, when I went through medical school, we were taught how to take a spiritual history as part of the social history on our patients, and then I would say promptly after graduating from medical school, almost no one did it. Um, so, you know, what does this mean in practice? Well, you know, we, we may not be able to prescribe religion, and nor should we, um, but we need to do a better job of taking a spiritual history on our patients and at the very least, I think, encouraging and helping them to engage their spiritual resources as a means to better health. Um, as, as in the example of the woman I, I you know, mentioned at the beginning of our, our discussion, um, you know, she, she had a faith history, she had a belief in God, but was really disconnected from it for many years, and saw how drawing upon that resource again could be a means for her to manage and cope with her, her problems of depression. 
I also think we need to examine this more closely from a public health perspective. So when we see effect sizes as large as we do with religious practice and health, really surpassing many of our other types of clinical and public health interventions, I think we need to be doing a better job of asking how can public health encourage faith communities and religious participation? I mean, as, as opposed to the, what we, I think, more closely see, which is like leave that to the privacy of your own home or better yet, keep it out of the public space uh, and out of healthcare because like, like the NDSU colleague I had, some you know, goofy mistaken notion that it's bad for you. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have a question, Jack? Oh well, we've got about one minute before we're finished. I did have a quick one. Do you think that the uh, as this evidence, uh, the statistical data, you know, shows this uh, correlation between you know good outcomes? Do you think that would ever be seriously presented in medical schools and medical training? I do, uh, I do, and in fact, it's it's certainly gaining greater attention in in. Uh, major uh, peer-reviewed medical journals. Um, Harvard has a high-profile um, uh, professor there to, that is now in charge of an institute of human flourishing where he is very interested in this particular question about faith communities and religion as a means to human flourishing. So I think it is uh, kind of prime time for uh, bringing this into greater light and, uh, and in teaching in our schools and in our medical training. Well, I, I, I hope we see it, and uh, I, I wish we had some more time. I think this is a fascinating uh, topic and subject, and uh, we're only getting kind of the uh, the mile-high view of things. It'd be fun to get into it deeper, but again, the clock is not our friend, and it's time for us to uh, uh, call this segment to a close, and we'll call on, uh, on Aaron for his producer's preview, and Dr. Carson, Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to visit with us today. It's It's been great. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Dr. Carson.